Welcome to Straight Talk with Wine Spectator, a podcast from the world's most widely read wine magazine. On Straight Talk, we're bringing the pages of Wine Spectator to life, from the latest vintages of the world's best wines to in-depth interviews with the world's best winemakers. We'll also be answering your questions, covering the latest wine industry news, and much more. And you know, people say, why, why are you giving away your, your secrets, your plant material? But Dad always would say, you know, it's the site that matters. I can't take it to bed with me. <laughs> <laughs> we only get really one bite at the apple per year um, as winemakers. Even the sort of icons of the industry have only had maybe 30, 40 tries at, at, at this thing that we do. Ultimately, at the end of the day, I hope people taste my farming more than my winemaking. But this is from the land and the people that work it and the place and the time. I'm James Molesworth, Senior Editor and Special Projects Director for Wine Spectator. And in this episode of Straight Talk, we're highlighting Wine Spectator's July 2023 issue. Our cover story is on California's greatest Chardonnay vineyards. And my colleague, Senior Editor Marianne Warbeck, she's going to be joining us in just a few minutes. And she's bringing along some big-time Chardonnay stars. First up is Larry High. He's a true California Chardonnay pioneer. He founded Hyde Vineyards in 1979, and his grapes have been going into some of the Golden State's most highly regarded Chardonnay bottlings ever since. He'll be joining us along with his son, Chris Hyde, who's the GM of the vineyard. We've also got Jason Kessner and Matt Courtney coming in. If you don't know them, you know their wines. Jason Kessner is the winemaker at Kistler, and Matt Courtney was making a Chardonnay and Pinot Noir at a little place called Marcusan for a few years before he joined Arista and started his own Farron project, so that should be an interesting conversation. But before we get to our Chardonnay coverage, i got to check in with our podcast director, Rob Taylor. Hey, James. Great to have you back in New York after your most recent trip to California. Thanks, and that came after my most recent trip to Bordeaux, which meant there was quite a bit of laundry to do. So I needed a week at home here in New York. I appreciate you doing the laundry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I'm looking at this beautiful cover of the July 31st issue. It's got Bien Nacido Vineyard in Santa Barbara County. It looks like something you could hang in a museum. And I'm seeing a lot of familiar names here, and one of them jumped off the page to me, and that's Durrell. Mm -hmm. You just published a report on Pinot Noir from Durrell Vineyard. Yeah, the Durrell Vineyard is owned by Bill Price and Three Sticks Winery. And I visited that when I was out there in May, and it's a fantastic site. They have a long history of having a lot of varietals in that vineyard, but after Price bought it, he really started focusing on Pinot and Chardonnay, and now the vineyard is almost entirely Pinot and Chardonnay. So it's been an interesting evolution there, and it's really one of the top sites uh, for those two grapes. And we've got a bunch more Pinot Noir coverage coming up from you on winespectator.com, mm -hmm. and I can't help but notice I'm seeing a lot of the same names in your Pinot Noir coverage as I'm seeing in this Chardonnay cover story. Yeah, there's that just historical Burgundian cultural connection. You know, Pinot mm -hmm. and Chardonnay go together like milk and cookies or wine and cheese. You know, the, the, the sites uh, are cool, uh, which is ideal for both of those grape varieties, and they've just historically been together. And, you know, basically the lay of the land in California is it's Cabernet and Napa Valley or Pinot and Chardonnay and Sonoma. There's obviously exceptions, but that, that's basically how it rolls. So I think we're probably going to have to send you right back to California. Might as well. I have filed my Pinot report. Uh, as you noted, we've got a lot of Pinot coverage coming up. Um, I'm heading back to California now to start focusing on my Cabernet report, and I'll be chatting with Marianne when I'm out there uh, to talk about more Chardonnay. Looking forward to that. Safe travels, and we'll see you on the other side. It's officially summer, and it's another beautiful sunny day here in Napa. So it couldn't be a better time to talk Chardonnay. 
And I want to welcome back senior editor and my colleague, Marianne Worobiec, who is our lead taster for California Chardonnay. Hello, Marianne. Hey, James. It's great to be back here in the studio with you, and it's always good to have you here in Napa. Uh, you just worked through a couple hundred Chardonnays over the last 12 <laughs> months, and you've been here at Wine Spectator for 26 years, just like me. And during that time, we've seen sort of an evolution in California Chardonnay. There was the sort of oak bomb style in the beginning, which seemed to dominate. Then there was the, the return to the minerally style. I'd say... Help me if I'm wrong here. Has the oak bomb style kind of ratcheted down and the minerally style kind of ratcheted up a little bit? So things are kind of in the middle now? Absolutely. But I think there's a price point where that breaks. So I think if you go to a grocery store and you're spending, you know, 15 bucks or under for a Chardonnay, nothing wrong with that. But you probably will find plenty of those kind of oaky, sweeter styles. But if you're paying $30 or more for a Chardonnay, what you're finding is kind of the centering of the pendulum swinging from one side to the other. So you will get beautiful oak influences that add aromatics and body but there's still a lot of fresh acidity. There's minerality flavors. I've been salting a lot of things in my tasting notes. So mm-hmm. it's like, okay. you know, salting melon and salting lime and that sort of thing. You know what I mean? Yeah, that salty note is is what some people refer to as minerality. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I do like that in some whites. And, and I, get what you're, I get what you're throwing at me there, Marianne. <laughs> I knew you would, James. Let's, uh, let's get to our first interview. We've got Larry and Chris Hyde coming up, but we've got a new group of guys, Jason Kessner and Matt Courtney. Why don't you introduce us to them? Yeah, so I, I remember pitching this uh, kind of mini roundtable of Chardonnay producers to you, describing that they both have such this great take on wine. They're both very kind of zen, thoughtful winemakers, and I, I really like their approach and I love their wines. Um, so Jason Kessner is the winemaker at Kistler. He first joined the team in 08, and then when Steve Kistler retired in 2017 from his namesake brand, Jason took over as winemaker. But what's really interesting about Jason is that before he was at Kistler, he worked at Hudson Vineyards, which is one of the vineyards I feature. So he had a really, he was very helpful to me from the perspective of vineyard manager and winemaker. And Matt Courtney, I know, uh, I believe you're a fan of his as well. Mm -hmm. Since 2013, Matt has been working for two brands. One is the Russian River Valley specialist, Arista, and then his own brand that focuses on the Sonoma Coast, Farron. And if you hadn't heard of Matt Courtney, you should also know that probably one of the biggest credits on his resume is that he worked at Marcuson with Helen Turley and John Wetlawfer before um, 2013. All right. Well, let's go to that interview now. As you both know, my report this year, my story was about vineyard-designated Chardonnays, focusing on um, producers like Hudson uh, that grow grapes and sell them to multiple people. Matt, when you first heard that, did you think it was a good idea to focus on vineyards? And please say yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, of course. Um, we certainly follow in the, the French tradition with Pinot Noir and Chardonnay of bottling vineyard designates separately from from each other. And I think, you know, it's what, it's natural. It's what we all love about Pinot Noir and Chardonnay is that they are so transparent and they do sort of express um, the conditions under which they're grown so so well. And so when we find these sites that we think are special, we want to capture that that specialness in the bottle. Obviously, you know, both Jason and I are, are, are huge proponents of showcasing these these sites that we've that we've sort of located and, and identified as, as special for these two varieties. So, you know, if you thought about the opposite, which would be, you know, blending everything together. I mean, it's not that you can't make good wine that way. It's that you, you do lose some of the the unique, you know, aspects of these sites that we, we do actually want to capture and showcase. So I think it's a, 
it's a tradition that we certainly have espoused and, and continue to use in, in terms of showcasing uh, our favorite sites. Yeah. How about you, Jason? When you're putting a vineyard name on your bottle, what are you trying to communicate to someone who might be buying that bottle? Well, you know, first of all, just to reiterate what Matt said, I mean, it's one of the most transparent varietals that there is to both site and uh, to technique, too. So, you know, what we're trying to communicate to the end user is a sense of place and time. And I know those words are really often overused in our industry, but they couldn't be truer compass points for what we do. Ultimately, at the end of the day, I hope people taste my farming more than my winemaking and that of the people that we work with, Hudson, Hyde, Durrell, and the Duttons. This is an agricultural pursuit, and I think that's easily lost in the end product, which winds up in a fancy restaurant in New York City. But this is from the land and the people that work it and the place and the time. And so that transparency lends itself, I think, very well. The transparency of the varietal lends itself very well to really being able to uncover both the place and the year it was grown. So, you know, when I taste and show our lineup, hopefully there's a, there's a continual thread of a given personality of a site year to year. But on top of that, you can also taste the year. You know, one thing that strikes me whenever we get together and do sort of a, a tasting with, with multiple winemakers from the Russian River Valley, what's really striking is how great the flights always are mm. these days. I mean, the winemaking and the farming are really just exceptional now. And it makes me really proud to participate in tastings like that because quality is just at an all-time high. It makes sense if you think about us having been farming now in this area for coming up on 200 years, really, in Sonoma County. And, you know, people like Jason and I now benefiting from the work that the growers and winemakers before us have done, whether it's identifying the, the best sites for, for Chardonnay um, and really honing in on that to exploring, you know, different styles of winemaking. I think we've kind of plumbed the depths of all the, you know, different extremes at yeah. this point. And so what I see now is, I don't know if it's a convergence of styles necessarily, but I think these kind of caricature wines are starting to kind of fall fall away. Right. And, and we're, we're and we're talking buttery, oaky, yeah, candy, yes. candied, yeah. Exactly. I think people are starting to realize that, you know, there's a plurality of, of approaches and, and philosophies still behind Chardonnay winemaking, but people, I think, are making very high-quality wines in a more sort of mature, I guess, mm-hmm. style. In other words, the entire industry, I feel like, is kind of coming out of its adolescence and really reaching a, a level of maturity at this point. What do you think, Jason? Do you agree with that? I totally agree with what Matt was saying. I mean, in particular, the maturity aspect. I mean, you know, we've got to give ourselves credit. We do have 200 years under our belt, so to speak. We don't have 900 years <laughs> with a foundation of, you know, Benedictine monks focusing on on how these things are supposed to go. That's a reference to Burgundy. Yes. Uh, but, but we, you know, we do, yeah, we're starting to gain that um, maybe comfort level mm-hmm. with ourselves and our industry. I think that plays to the maturity. I do appreciate the variety of styles we have yeah. in, in California. There's a, there's a vast array of approaches to the varietal, but I think like Matt mentioned, you know, we're, we're starting to get away from the extremes on both ends. Right. The overdone, buttery, 
type of Chardonnay, as well as the underripe crab apple type of Chardonnay, right? <laughs> right? I mean, it's just sort of, they're both yeah. not super pleasant sometimes, maybe is a way to put it delicately. Um, and yeah, I think we're, I think we're coming to center a little bit and, and getting to exactly what we've been talking about, which is this taking the ego out of it, maybe a little bit and getting back to the idea of time and place and transparency to both those things. So when we talk about kind of no more extreme, you know, wines or, or more of a centering of the, the pendulum swinging back and forth between styles, I can't think of a particular single wine or leader. It feels like it was almost like a group think that you all arrived at the same conclusion. Matt, how do you, how do you think we kind of ended up here besides the maturation, which you've already mentioned? Right. Yeah, I think really probably trial and error, yeah. you know, um, which, you know, we we only get really one sort of bite at the apple yeah. per year as winemakers. So oftentimes this experimentation and the learning process is really slow. You know, I mean, if you think about the difference between making wine and, and being in the kitchen, you know, if you make a dish that um, doesn't quite work, well, you can you can try again tomorrow. Right. <laughs> right yeah. In wine, we, we have one shot per year. So the learning curve is really extended. Even the sort of icons of the industry have only had maybe 30, 40 tries right. at, at, at this thing that we do. So. Yeah, I think it's been trial and error, and it's sort of almost inevitable that we've we've tried sort of everything, right? right. Um, whether it's, you know, if, if a little bit of new oak is good, well, then a lot <laughs> has to be better, right? Or, right? or ripeness or any of these these kind of um, variables that we that we deal with. So, yeah, it's been trial and error, but I think now that we've kind of tried everything, that part of the process has kind of been at, you know worked out of the system, and now we've kind of identified which things work best and which don't. And of course, we all gravitate towards those things that work. Yeah. And to that point, Jason, I, I know you've, you and I have talked before about how, you know, your job is to try and capture that day of harvest in the wine bottle. You know, that's your, your one chance a year. Has the definition of that evolved over your 15 years at Kistler? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, certainly our house style has transitioned away from being hyper, not hyper-focused, but maybe one of the more important focal points of harvest being sugar to one of the more important focal points being pH, mm. field pH and acidity. Um, I'm allergic to making additions. So uh, I actually get that checked out. Literally <laughs> almost break out in hives when I have to do it. Obviously it's a, it's a commercial pursuit. We need to maintain microbiological stability in the wines. So there are certain things that you know, there's making that occurs, but the less of that, the better from my perspective. Mm-hmm. And as Matt said, we've only got one shot at this a year. So that's a little nerve wracking sometimes. It could be a little tense. But, you know, our job even more than that is to make sure we get it on the absolute perfect day when it doesn't need any amelioration, when mm-hmm. the fruit itself can make what we hope is a very good balanced wine on its own, just a single ingredient. Um, And so we bend over backwards to do that. And we do that by having, I mean, I I shudder at the word winemaker. We've got 56 winemakers at Kistler Vineyards (laughs) and that's our year round staff. That's entirely devoted to production. A lot of hands make these wines. And um, yeah, we, we do some pretty exceptional backflips to make it all happen on a certain night during harvest. 
So put some Chardonnay in your mouth, people. It's really, it's really good. Um, honestly, thank you again to Matt Courtney of Arista and Farron and Jason Kesner of Kistler. Thank you all so much for being here. Thank you. It was so much fun to have them here in our Napa office. And I also was particularly delighted because Jason and Matt had never met each other before that day. And I'm really happy that they got to got to meet each other and, and share their thoughts. That was a fun interview, Marianne. Thanks for that. I, I like how Matt talks about, you know, the industry titans have only gotten 30 or 40 cracks at this in terms right. of the number of vintages that mm-hmm. they worked. And that's what I'm hearing on the Pinot side of things. Of course, Chardonnay and Pinot tend to go hand in hand around here. And I like that these... New, this new generation of winemakers like Matt and Jason are really taking a long-term view. Do you get that that gist? Oh, absolutely. And and you're right. You can, by the way, take my story, replace the word Chardonnay with Pinot Noir, and you're welcome. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, there definitely is a lot more forward thinking, I think, now than ever. I mean, certainly there are a lot of, um, you know, issues with climate and fires and water and labor. So taking a long-term view is pretty pretty standard let's talk about now family-owned vineyards yes because this is an interesting aspect of california winemaking that Mm -hmm. you have this sort of grower culture out here and then there are these vineyards that sell a lot of their fruit to different people Mm -hmm. and so on the surface everyone complains that it's too corporate out here but in fact there's a really strong undercurrent of multi-generational family growers yeah and you got like the mcdonald's the fridiani's the valdez's the abrus right and the Hydes are certainly one of the most prominent. Tell us about Larry and Chris Hyde. Yeah, it was a pleasant surprise to find out that many of the vineyards I picked for this report are family-owned and multi-generational. And I'm thrilled that we had the Hydes here in studio in our Napa office. Larry Hyde first planted in Carneros in 1979, and now his son Chris is GM. So we had them both in, and one of the first things I asked Larry was about how he got into the wine industry in the 1970s. I worked in the cellar because you were making a dollar an hour in the vineyard and you were making $10 an hour in a cellar. (laughs) Easy math, right? Do you have any favorite winery that you worked at or any favorite winery experiences? They're all favorite experiences, and they all add their sore sides, too. I uh, worked at uh, Stag's Leap for Warren Wynierski uh-huh. because I, I he knew his reputation as a winemaker, and this was well-earned. The guy was brilliant. But he was a little rude. He was a little rough. But he was also very good at what he did and paid a lot of attention to cleanliness. We didn't grow up in town. We grew up out, out on the farm, uh, out in the middle of the vineyards. So when you got back from school, you were, you know, you had uh, work to do around the vineyard. You know, your chores were doing irrigation checks and, you know, uh, tying up young vines and uh, other sort of Outdoors work, I spent a lot of time uh, when I wasn't reading books. I was out in the vineyard. I was kind of wandering around outside. I had an affinity for plants, and my dad sort of uh, introduced us to the world of soil and minerals and and rocks and geology. And uh, my dad was sort of a master gardener, I guess, Uh, big rose garden, always paying attention and explaining where these plants like to grow and why. And I sort of picked up on that, and the whole, the whole outdoor world really 
was my playground. So hmm. when uh, there was a little Cal Poly um, Expo, I think I was a sophomore in high school, it was a College of Agriculture offering students to come down and take a look. And when I expressed interest, my dad immediately booked us a hotel and drove us down there. Oh. And uh, and I went and checked out the insect you know, biology lab, the entomology professor was kind of a kook, and I really got into that. Um, he ended up being my professor seven or eight years later, and those were really the classes that they hit home to me, plant pathology, weed ecology, entomology. And uh, I think between those eight years is when I, when I realized, you know, okay, the business part, it makes sense to me. It's easy. Chemistry, it all sort of clicked, but really the technical stuff is what got me excited. And the mm-hmm. fact that, you know, working on a, a vineyard could could give you access to all those different things, not to mention, you know, we'd been making homemade wine together growing up. And through the years, I was kind of became the guy who tended to the barrels in our home cellar. Uh, the fact that you could kind of connect all these dots from the soil to the, the farming of the plants to the cellar to a finished product that you can taste 10 years later and sort of connect back to that moment, that season, wow. you know, the history of it. That always been a history buff, too, and the whole thing really, really made sense for me. So I guess I did know at a young age. So James Leary also talked to me about clones, which I know is a subject that you like. He went over the history of getting the Wente clone from the Wente winery in Livermore, and they've developed over the years their version of the Wente clone called the Hyde Wente clone. And it's particularly desirable because it has low yields, tiny berries. It's really concentrated and it can retain its acidity. A bunch of grapes can usually fit in the palm of your hand. And Chris pointed out that Larry made sure that that clone would be available to anyone who wanted it, which has really helped elevate the quality of Chardonnay across the state. Actually, Dad's made them available to everybody, um, which he didn't have to do. And, you know, people say, why why are you giving away your your secrets, your plant material? Because it's become quite popular in the (laughs) North Coast. But, you know, Dad always would say, you know, it's the site that matters. I can't take it to bed with me. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like taking a vine to bed might be a little scratchy. (laughs) It's it's a rocket until you tried it. (laughs) I I get why these guys love their, their clone and... Uh, their selections, you know, it's sure. the same thing with Pinot, the Calera clones, the Mount Eden clones. It, this is really where the quality is coming from, and the last generation has fine-tuned this vineyard base uh, accordingly. And finally, our conversation led us to a topic that was on the top of many of these family-run vineyards. That is the desire to farm organically and sustainably for future generations. But we talked about how it has both its benefits and its costs. That is a very important part of what we're doing. We work with a lot of wineries that encourage organic mm-hmm. cultivation, Spotswood, you know, Dan Petrowski with Massacan. Oh, of course, yeah. And, you know, we've always been passionate about this. Dad's been a proponent of using organic compost. He started farming organically, I think it was with Frog's Leap decades ago. And part of what my mission has been over the last 10 or 12 years that I've been managing the vineyard is to completely do away with herbicides. Everything is is farmed organically when it comes to treating with herbicides. We have a few plots that we're getting ready to certify, but we've we've definitely pushed the process closer and closer towards going 100% organic, sustainably farmed, various certifications. And, you know, it starts with the soil, and we've been 
very proud to be adapters of that model. And I don't think um, wine lovers really understand the level of commitment it takes. It's not like you just swap out an organic product for a non-organic product. The organic products, um, my understanding is that they they don't last as long or work as hard because they're organic, so you have to do multiple passes through the vineyard. Anything else that you'd want to add to that point? I mean, the cost of farming in general has gone up, and um, you're right, organic products don't work as well. So we go in and do a lot of this work by hand, whether it's uh, with a shovel or mechanical cultivators. And you know, an important part going forward is going to be vineyard mechanization, uh, working on improvements there, efficiency, there's a lot of work to be done. A lot of work to be done indeed, but a really nice interview with Larry and Chris Hyde, Marianne. Thanks for that. You've still got more work to do, though. I think your alter ego has an appointment with Rob Taylor right now. <laughs> I believe they do. Um, but before I go, James, thank you so much for having me on here. You can read all about Chardonnay in the July 31st issue. That's both the cover story on the best vineyards for Chardonnay in California and my annual Chardonnay tasting report. Hello, dear listeners. Your questions have been answered. And yes, it's time for another edition of Ask Dr. Vinny. And that's where you say hello. <laughs> I thought you were going to call me mysterious and elusive again. Hi, Rob. Thanks for having me back. I've got a spicy one for you today. Ooh. Are you ready? I am so ready. I'm not even going to say their name because I don't want to feel responsible for breaking up any friendships. Okay. Dear Dr. Vinny. We recently hosted a dinner party. One of the guests brought a bottle of wine that we didn't end up opening. Mm. They asked for the bottle back when they left, and we returned it to them. Am I wrong to never want to invite them back? Oh, that's a rough one, Rob. I know. <laughs> so, have you ever brought a bottle of wine to someone's house? I have, and I have never asked for it back. So I think one of the reasons that people bring wine to someone's house for dinner is as a host or hostess gift, which is awesome. I do that all the time. That is a gift for them. They are to enjoy it whenever they want. They're under no obligation to open it at that moment. Sometimes they might. I've certainly brought chocolates and they're like, oh, these look great. Let's open them now and have them with, you know, coffee. But absolutely Every host gift is for the host and not for you. <laughs> so if you want to bring a bottle of wine to someone's house and you want it open, you should probably check with them first and just make sure expectations are clear on both sides. You don't know if the bottle of wine is something that's going to go with what they're preparing. You don't know if they've like spent hours and days and weeks, you know, mulling over all the choices and coming up with the perfect pairing for what they have. You don't know how important the wines are that they're serving to them. So you should work out ahead of time. You, if you want to bring a bottle of wine and you want them to open, you should say, hey, thank you so much. Can't wait to see you Thursday night. I've got this really special bottle. Would it be okay if I brought it and we shared it together? And allow them to say no. Like I said, some people might really have everything planned to the last detail. So you can't just show up and expect them to serve your wine. And also, you don't know if you guys have the same taste in wine. So if you bring a bottle to someone's house, you should, under no circumstance, ask to bring it back. I, I really think that's that's pretty rude. Okay, the real question. Yeah. How do you react when one of your guests asks for their bottle back? Oh, yeah, that's tough. I think, I, I mean, I think my first response would be shock and surprise, but I, I'm assuming underneath that, 
is some disappointment on my guest's part that we didn't share that bottle of wine together. So I think I would not make a scene, hand them the bottle back and say something like, oh, I hope we get a chance to enjoy this together, or I'm sorry we didn't get to it this evening, or something like that. I guess you have to kind of decide which is more important, that bottle of wine or your friendship. And I'm hoping the friendship is more important. You've got an answer for everything. (laughs) I do. It's kind of my job. Well, that's all we have time for for today's Ask Dr. Venny. But for more of Dr. Venny's free advice, check out her weekly Q&As at Wine Spectator's website and email us your questions at straighttalk at winespectator.com. Please do. And the more complicated, the more fun I have answering them. Thank you, Dr. Venny. Thanks, Rob. How about you, James? Have you ever brought a bottle to a party and asked to take it home with you? I have never done that. Um, I understand that uh, when you bring a bottle, it's a gift to the host for their uh, hospitality. And, you know, they'll enjoy it when they enjoy it. Um, And I've never had someone come over and ask to take their bottle back because when people come to my house for dinner party, there's usually multiple bottles. And so it's going to get drunk. (laughs) I mean, that's just the way it goes. Um, Well, I can say on uh, good authority that... James brings good bottles, so invite James to your next dinner party, for sure. (laughs) Thanks. You won't go wrong. Uh, Rob, why don't you tell us what's coming up in the next episode? Lots to look forward to, James. Episode 11 is going to be our first ever Wine Spectator Restaurant Awards episode. Okay. We've got a legendary chef lined up. We'll be catching up on the latest dining industry news with senior editor for news, Mitch Frank. And we'll be joined by Wine Spectator Executive Editor Jeffrey Lindenmuth. I mean, his straight talk debut. We finally got him on here. Okay. Until then, our listeners can email us their questions or just drop us a line at straighttalk at winespectator.com. And don't forget to follow Wine Spectator on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Now, how about that bonus wine pick, James, to reward all our listeners who stuck around to the end? My sneak peek wine pick is the Hillock and Hobbs Riesling Seneca Lake Dry, their estate vineyard bottling in the 21 vintage. Now, most New York wine. Yeah, you know, everyone knows that I'm covering Bordeaux and Pinot Noir and Cabernet from California, but I also cover the wines in New York State, and I've been covering the Finger Lakes for a long time. I want to give them a little props here. So this new Hillock and Hobbs wine, it's only the third vintage, and I'm sure most of our listeners recognize the Hobbs name. That's Paul Hobbs. Any serious wine person would know who Paul Hobbs is. 91 points, 35 bucks, and 4,000-plus cases made. So this is a juicy deal. So if you like a real nervy, taut Riesling, the Hillock and Hobbs Seneca Lake Dry Estate Vineyard 21 from winemaker Paul Hobbs, who also is a New York uh, upstate native, and it's really a return home for his project. You heard it here from James. Thanks for joining us on Straight Talk, Rob, and everyone else who's been listening along. I'm James Molesworth, reminding you to always share when you drink the good stuff. <laughs> <laughs>